from the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. All right, let me uh, begin with this question. It's an uncomfortable question, especially for people of an evangelical background, but here it is. What are the consequences of walking away from grace? What are the consequences of walking away from the grace of God? So uh, today I want to open, not actually with Hebrews 3, the text that we're looking at today, but I want to kind of inception style, I want to do the dream within a dream. Hebrews 3 is all about a different uh, section of scripture from the Old Testament. So I want to move to that scripture that Hebrews 3 is essentially a sermon on top of. Um, So one of the key central tragedies of the Old Testament is the story in mind in Hebrews 3. And a lot of people blaze through Hebrews without having read Numbers anytime recently, and it doesn't make that much sense. So let's uh, place us in the context of what the author in Hebrews 3 is talking about. The Israelites have seen the glory of God. They've seen all the plagues of Egypt. They've gone through the Exodus. They've gone through the sea. They've seen the conquering, the drowning of Pharaoh's army. They've had the, the manna in the wilderness. And the whole way, even though it might have not seemed like it till the very last minute, God had their back. God took care of them, even if the whole world should fall around side them. And now they're nearing this promised land, the land of Canaan, and they've been moving through all of the lands until that time, either peacefully or if someone you know, wants to start fights or a war with them, they've been uh, defeating them handily in battle. And now they're at the border of Canaan, and they send in spies to spy out the land to see just what they're up against. And God had already told them that they would be victorious, but only two people in that story, in this central tragedy of the Exodus, two people remember and believe God's promise that they will be victorious in uh, moving into the land of Canaan. But the other spies aren't having it. They're thinking on a much more worldly plane. They report back to the people that the land and people they spied on are strong. They have walled cities, they're heavily fortified, and worse... Many of the men are what's called Nephilim, or descendants of Anak. Does anyone know what the Nephilim are? Anyone? Yeah. The Nephilim are what Goliath was, a descendant of Anak. Now, what's really interesting is for about 15, 1600 years, uh, a lot of critical thinkers just thought the Bible was just entering into myth. This is just weird. You know, Goliath wasn't actually nine feet tall because no one's nine feet tall, right? Uh, this is just the Bible entering into a kind of uh, hyperbole or myth until the modern archaeological age of the last 150 years or so kicked off and we started digging up the bones and the remains and the tombs of all of these ancients. And what we found was, what we found, I'm not an archaeologist, what they found and that I read uh, <laughs> Some people are so preposterous, like, what we think in the academy, right? Anyway, uh, what they found is that there were actually a large number of people who were quite tall, not giants like in the storybooks, but between 7 and 10 feet tall. There are over 200 skeletons today that are between 7 and 10 feet tall from this era in the Levant, so basically Egypt up through the biblical lands up into Turkey. So it wasn't like even one in a hundred people were that size, but it wasn't one in a million, like today how we have these basketball players who are seven feet tall and more. There were actually maybe one in every few hundred or one in a thousand people was between seven and 10 feet tall in the ancient world. There are two Egyptian women who are eight feet tall. We have the skeletons of two Egyptian women who are eight feet tall. So imagine how tall some of the men are, right? If our tallest men and women are a good foot apart, imagine you've got a plenty of these eight, nine, 10 footers 
walking around. So the Bible is not engaging in hyperbole. This is not myth. There actually were people that were Goliath's size, and they were, uh, there was a lot of them. There was some sort of genetic abnormality in the Levant where a, a fair number of people had these sort of giant genes. Uh, and, and over time, they've been bred out of the gene pool, or they've just sort of died off uh, for reasons we don't really know. Um, so they see a lot of these cities with a lot of these giants, and they're afraid. People seven feet tall, eight foot tall women. <laughs> uh, and so Caleb and Joshua remind people, they say, hey, we can do it. God has promised us that we can take the land. But the spies are like, no, man, there's, there's giants. We were like grasshoppers to them. So they report it to the people. They report what they saw, and all the Israelites despair. So I'm going to read a few passages from Numbers 14. They say, this is, a, this is the ESV. We don't talk like this anymore. Uh, but they say, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. It's sort of like, oh, that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So this is one of the central faith failings of the entire Old Testament, that they've been through this entire exodus, they've seen all the miracles of God, and they get right to the gate, they get to the very end, and they say, let's find a leader and go back into slavery. Let's see if the Egyptians will take us back into this sort of slave-peasant scenario. And then Caleb pleaded with them, the Lord is with us, do not fear them. I'm sure it was longer than that, but the, the author doesn't go on much more in numbers. I'm sure Caleb made this whole speech about how God had been with them and how they could conquer in the land. But uh, the, the people don't listen. It says, then all the congregation uh, said to stone them, Caleb and Joshua, the two that were fighting to keep going, the two optimists. It said, the, congrega the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And then Moses, there's this long section where Moses pleads with God for the forgiveness of the people, for forgiving their lack of faith. And God relents, but he only meets him halfway to a, a, maybe a complete uh, forgiveness, uh, scot-free of any... Um, Repercussions. So the Lord says, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. So he's basically saying, you're going to still inherit the land. I will forgive the people of Israel, but none of the people who are of, uh, of an adult age now will see it. They're all going to die first. Uh, so he goes on to say, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, none shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness." 
Wow. Uh, the, it's even more graphic. Uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, the word for dead bodies or corpses, they use the word for uh, severed limbs. So they say, as for you, your limbs shall scatter in this wilderness. So we will come back to this Old Testament story. Just sort of put that on hold or on pause for now. So remember where we've been in Hebrews 1 and 2. And, and remember the plight of these Hebrew Christians. They were so excited. You know, Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, had died and risen again, and the whole world was going to convert, and then he was going to come back, and all would be saved, right? That's what they were kind of thinking. But instead, it's been 20 years now, and a lot of their, a lot of their family never converted, even though a lot of them did. A lot of their family never converted. And now the Jews are still very plentiful. A lot of them are sort of set now. Not, there's not as many conversions happening. So here you've got these Christian Jews, these, these Messiah-believing Hebrews, who are no longer welcome in their family, right? They're rejected. They're, uh, they're getting the cold shoulder from their family for 20 years now, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And now Rome is starting to persecute Christians but because the Jews have a more ancient religion than the Romans, the Jews are okay. The Romans are saying, hey, you know, the Jews, you've got a more ancient religion. You were around since before we were even a city-state, so you guys are okay. But this new sect of Jews, these Messiah-believing Jews, these Christian Jews, they're the bad guys, right? And so they're getting persecuted. So imagine you're a Hebrew Christian. Your own family won't talk to you. Rome is persecuting you hard. And here you have this business, or you've got this store, or you've got this trade, and you're being kicked out of all the cities you live in because of this belief. So it's a really hard time to be a Hebrew, a Jewish Christian, uh, 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. And so that's where uh, chapters 1 and 2 is the author of Hebrews trying to encourage them, say, you know, don't fall back in these weak and hard times. Don't go back to your former religion. Instead, remember that the, your entire former religion was pointing ahead to this time. And that's what the entire book is made to do. So we get this short bit about how Jesus is better than the angels, and he just proceeds to go through about how Jesus is better than all these different aspects of Jewish religion. So we'll have this short paragraph, and then we'll get into the story that we opened the sermon on. So the author starts... Uh, for those of you who are new with us, we, we spent the first week talking about the mystery of who the author is. No one knows the author didn't put their name, but there's four or five leading contenders, just so you know. It's, uh, it could be Apollos, Luke, Barnabas. It could be Priscilla, which would be really interesting, possibly a female author of the New Testament. Uh, and it could be Clement. Those are sort of your five leading people. And so maybe be keeping your ears tuned for, like, who do you think could have written this? It's a kind of fun historical mystery, but we don't know who wrote this. Of the 14,000 epistles that we have from the ancient world, Hebrews is the only one without an author named in the beginning. So it's a big mystery as to why, almost as if it was willfully left off. Okay, back to this. All right, um, the author begins. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. 
Now, uh, he's going to take it right to them from here. Uh, so they're feeling outside the home of Judaism, their, their religious ancestry. They're feeling outside their house, which is how the Jews referred to their religion, the house of Judaism, just like you hear about the house of Islam today. It's, that's how they referred to the faith. They're rejected by their Jewish relatives, and they're wanting to go back to the old house of Israel. But the author has a word for them. He says, Jesus is better than that house, right? If Moses was faithful in the house, how much more faithful is the founder, the one who actually built it, the one through whom it was all created? Jesus is better than Moses, and he is better than the law. He's better than the angels, and now he's better than Israel's history. All right, so <laughs> for a people who are struggling and thinking about going back to what was familiar, he's saying, the familiar is done, and Jesus is better than all of this. So uh, Moses, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, this is a background. For a lot of these Hebrew Christians knew the Old Testament so well, and we often don't read it that often, even though we should. Uh, so in the Old Testament, there's a, a scene that the author's interacting with where Aaron and Miriam, are. they speak against Moses. They sort of disrespect him. And then the highest thing that's ever said in the Old Testament about any character, to my mind, I mean, maybe it's, it's close with David being a man after God's heart, but here is the highest uh, the words that are ever given to a human in the Old Testament. God himself comes to Moses' defense, and he says, when there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. So this is what, what God is sort of rebuking Miriam and Aaron by saying this. Hey, we've got all these prophets who have heard my voice, but I speak to Moses face to face. Right? He's set apart even from the other prophets. Um, so... This, this passage is really interesting. It also talks about how, um, in Hebrews, it says that we are his house. And if you look for this, I encourage you on your next read-through of the New Testament, just, I don't know, take out a highlighter or just sort of make a star every time the wording of the New Testament talks about us as a collective being either the house of the Lord, the church of God, the temple of God. There's somewhere between 12 and 15 references, depending on how deep into the woods you want to get and how, um, you know, there's really clear ones and then there's more blurry ones. And so depending on how you count it, somewhere between 12 and 15 times. And all throughout the New Testament, it talks about us being this temple or this body of Christ, this house, this dwelling. And every single time, it's in the plural, which I find really interesting. What it means is, for us Americans, we're always like, hey, my body's a temple, my body's a temple, and people do all these strange diets or these strange things, and they're always looking to the self and saying, my body is a temple. Only one of those 14 uses is about individual persons and their own bodies. That's in 1 Corinthians 6. All of the other references to us being the temple, the body of Christ, the collective church, it's all about the plural. So when it says, your body is a temple, if you spoke any other language other than English where the your plural is clearer and, and distinct from the singular your, we, as individualists, we hear your and it's always me because we, don't, we lost the y'alls, right? We lost the, the ye and the thine and all the plurals. Um, but in other languages, it's more clear that the, this is in the second person plural. It's a y'all's body, right? Your, your whole collective body is the body of the Holy Spirit, is the body of Christ. And it means the church. So then, then uh, Peter says... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul says the same. He says, uh, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? This is in 1 Corinthians 3. 
Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. The NIV is bending over backwards here to try to get the plural in in a language that doesn't have a your plural. Uh, It's like, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that your spirit dwells in your midst? Uh, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple, the church, is sacred, and you together. There's no Greek word for together there, but it's trying to get at this sense of for you together, for you all are that temple. All right, so the author says to the audience in Hebrews 3, You are looking to the Old Testament for fulfillment, but it is the Old Testament that speaks of its own failure to fulfill. You're looking back to Moses to bring you to the promised land, but don't forget that Moses himself couldn't even enter because of his own sin, because of his own mistakes. And it's at this thought, you can almost hear the author thinking, huh, he's like, don't repeat the mistakes of Moses. And with that, the author goes off into the story that started this. And so a lot of people have asked, and I'm not sure why people have asked, but people have said, why didn't Moses get to enter the promised land? What's, you know, what was the thing that Moses did? Almost as if it's a debate. And I think it's really clear in scripture um, that it's because when these spies came back and gave this report, Moses stayed Silent, right? He, he, he prayed for their forgiveness, but he wasn't leading out like Caleb and Joshua were. He wasn't the one leading out and saying, believe in God, he already told us that the land is ours. Instead, he stays back and stays silent while they, essentially, the others make this pessimistic view and say, let's all go back into slavery, right? They kind of reject the gift that God has given them and say, let's all just go back and sell ourselves to Egypt. And that seems to me clear that that's the reason that Moses himself never entered the promised land. He died outside of it, and then Joshua was able to carry the people of Israel in. Uh, All right, so this now in Hebrews 3, Hebrews interacts with the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book, uh, and that's why we spend so much time in the Old Testament in this series. Uh, And also, this is one of the longer citations, unbroken citations. So this is kind of how we preach texts. The author of Hebrews preaches a text like we do Whereas everywhere else in the New Testament, they're just kind of popcorning, right? They pull a verse here, pull a verse there. And sometimes to a modern reader, it's like, you know, I, I wouldn't get an A on a paper if I did that now, right? But that, that was the standard then for citing the Old Testament. But here, the author of Hebrews works much more like us, uh, and they cite a whole, a whole slew here. So the author says, so as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. He's quoting Uh, He or she is quoting from Psalm 95. Uh, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. So that's where the psalm ends and then the author goes on to say, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? 
So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So here, what is the author doing here? They're relating this struggle to the Hebrew Christians in Hebrews 3 to the Israelites who are right at the cusp of arriving, right at the, uh, at the cusp of the promised land. They were following God. The Israelites were following. They were seeing all these miracles, but they stopped believing in his goodness right at the very last moment. And because of that, and this is where people get really uncomfortable sometimes with the book of Hebrews, is that because they stopped believing in God's goodness right at the end, they were not allowed to enter into his rest, and they all were forced to die outside the promised land, but their descendants were allowed to come in. And this makes some people a little uncomfortable in terms of like the once saved, always saved arguments. You know, is it possible to believe in, in Jesus and then truly fall away? Or is it just that the people who, who seem to believe in Jesus and fall away were never saved in the first place? And I, I give you no answer other than to say that the result is the same. Those who, in, those who do not endure, it's clear from the Bible, if you do not endure in the faith, you're not saved. Whether you never were in the first place or whether you can truly be saved and walk away, I don't actually know the answer. And that's a debate I'll leave to the systematicians to figure out. Um, but what's clear is, if you don't endure, you're not saved. And that's a, that's a scary message, but that's clear no matter which side of that debate you fall on. And the author is saying the same for them. You are up against it now, just like the Israelites were. You seem like grasshoppers against your Roman enemies. You want to fall back to acceptance and comfort in the Jewish religion. You want to go back to your slavery, to the law, your slavery to sin and bondage. But don't. Don't give up right as you're about to enter the promised land, right as you are about to enter, as the author calls it, his rest. If you do give up, if you do stop swimming against that current and let it take you, you won't enter the promised land. Instead, you'll be left to die outside. Your limbs, in a sense, will be scattered outside. Um, I think I, yeah, I'll, I'll move on from, the, from that. Uh, God spoke, but they did not listen, and they lost his rest. And now, God is not speaking, like in, in uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, it says, God is not just speaking through Moses or the prophets, now he's speaking through his own son, through his own word, and what does it mean if you don't listen to that? If you didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, there was a retribution there. What happens if you don't listen to his own son? And so the author, it's really interesting because I feel sort of, um, I, I feel icky as a pastor. You know, normally we're in this era where you want to build people up, right? There's a lot of depressing news out there. So you want to build people up from the Bible rather than always um, tear down or, or challenge. Um, and this author has done so much better than a modern pastor can that the book of Hebrews actually seems really uplifting. Like when you read through it, you're like, oh, this is a really encouraging book. But the point of the book of Hebrews is to tell people not to fall away from their faith because if they do, bad things are going to happen. And so it's funny that when I say it out loud, I feel like, oh, this is kind of a negative, it's kind of a negative message, you know, endure to the end and um, stay with it. But somehow the author of Hebrews, again, guided by the Holy Spirit, it's amazing scripture, is able to make a book seem so encouraging and uplifting, even though really the reason it was written is to tell people not to fall away or there will be really vast consequences. So uh, they're saying, the author is saying, if you didn't listen to the angels or to Moses or to the prophets, it was bad. What happens if you don't listen to his son? What happens if you sell yourself back into slavery now when the word of God itself has taken on human flesh and talked to you? And that relates to today. I think many Christians feel the same temptation now that though our love of Jesus is strong, we're kind of 
assaulted on all different sides, right? So I grew up in an era of still largely cultural Christianity where it was beneficial to you to be in a church. Just in like a broader secular sense, it was good for you. Say you wanted to run for office or say you wanted to have a business in town or whatever it was, it was good for you to be in the church because people thought better of you and were more likely to trust you. Now that's flipped just in the last 20 or 30 years. Now if you go to a church, you may be suspect. You may be a bad guy, right? You may, you may be less electable or people might be less likely to go to your business. So already it's sort of, it's not cool or it's sort of a contrarian to be a Christian only in that we've seen that switch happen only in 20 or 30 years. And not only is that disappointing, but though our love of Jesus is strong, it's often fellow churches and maybe fellow evangelical institutions that can bewilder us sometime. Um, sometimes it's the church or evangelical institutions that let us down. They engage in scandal or they hire these charlatans and then they try to cover it all up. And we say once, well, that's not me. And then it happens again, and well, we say twice, well, that's definitely not me. And then it happens a dozen or two dozen or three dozen more times over the years, and we say, that's not me, right? Uh, is, is, wait, am I, you know, by belonging to a church that believes broadly similarly things to some of what's going on out there, does that, what does that say about me, right? And that's why we've been talking about this, that a lot of people are leaving the church in droves, not just the Catholic and mainline churches, but evangelical churches, because you see what's happening, and it's difficult. Many are tempted to associate Jesus with some of the broken characters and broken institutions that identify with him, and then leaving the whole thing entirely. There's a really good David Brooks article in the New York Times that just came out a few days ago. Let me read a quote from it. He interviewed Russell Moore, who said, we now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe that the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. So what he's saying is people are not stopping believing in Jesus. People believe in Jesus just the same, but they're seeing all the hypocrisy in the church and they're seeing all the hypocrisy in evangelical institutions and saying, gosh, that's not me, right? But as the dozens of times just keep rolling up, we say, it... Is, it, is there some sort of rotten husk here? Is there, is, there, is there something I'm not seeing? And a lot of people are losing their heart and walking away for that reason. They never stop believing in Jesus. What they do is they stop believing in keeping up with what seems like it could be uh, just a hypocritical institution uh, of evangelical churches. But the problem is once they've separated themselves from the herd, once they're out walking on their own, then they get picked off one by one. And we've been talking about this, that people leave the church for emotional wounds or they leave the body of Christ for you know, hypocrisy or whatever else. But it's once they're gone, and it seems like their faith is okay for six or 12 months, but then eventually, now they're not sure about their faith. And then a few years later, they're not even Christians at all anymore. So there's this slow thing from hypocrisy to being a believer that's not in the church to not being a believer at all to maybe even being a militant anti-Christian, uh, though, though many never get that far. And I think a lot of us are seeing this. There's a great pruning happening across all of Christianity in the West and, and especially in the evangelical church uh, in the last five or 10 years. And you've been living that. You guys know this. I think I'm seeing some nodding heads like, oh yeah, this sounds familiar. But yeah, read this David Brooks article. It's, it's really interesting. It talks about how uh, he says, imagine you have, I forget if it's 10 or 12 close friends. And now for most demographics in the country, a lot of those friends believed similar things to you and they just kept believing similar things. But evangelicalism has really been through in the last five or 10 years, both politically, with COVID, with all these other dramas, 
that people who were really close five or 10 years ago who thought, I've got these 10 or 12 close friends who all believe similarly to me have all been completely rocked because half of those friends went largely one way on a lot of decisions, half of those went another, and a lot of evangelicals are bewildered. Like, these were my closest friends. And after George Floyd or during COVID or because of masks or vaccines or elections, I mean, you name it, we have been through it. And people are looking to their closest friends and saying, really? And there's just this bewilderment, like we don't even understand each other. We're not even understanding each other anymore over this stuff. So yeah, I'd, I'd encourage you to find that article. It's really helpful. Sometimes it's helpful just to name what you've all been feeling for five or 10 years, right? So just naming it can be helpful. All right, so uh, back to Hebrews 3. The author is saying, your Christian community may be small, and it may seem like there are very few voices compared to those who want to push to fall back into fear, into slavery, right? There was just Caleb and Joshua who were fighting for the right track, and everyone else said, well, let's go sell ourselves back into slavery. So sometimes it can be a whopping majority who are advocating for the wrong thing. But he reminds us here, he or she reminds us that God has not made us as slaves, not made us to fall back into fear, but that we are sons and daughters and that we are adopted by God himself. It might not seem like it, even though God has had us the whole way, even when you get to the very end, it might seem like the giants are right on the other side of the gate and that we will all fall. But God took care of them, and he will take care of his church as well. You know, it's confusing reading Hebrew, uh, not to geek out here, but it's confusing reading the book, the letter to the Hebrews in Greek, uh, because I don't know if you know this, that in Greek, uh, Jesus and Joshua have the same name. Uh, it's, Yeshua is the same in both, or Yehoshua. And so it's really confusing when you're reading the letter of Hebrews and all of a sudden the author starts talking about Joshua because it's, it's the same as Jesus. So the author's talking about Jesus and then the author's talking about Joshua and you're like, wait, what? Uh, who, are you, who are you talking about? Um, but the author says this, that Joshua succeeds Moses and he's doing this on purpose, and that Joshua succeeds Moses just like Jesus did. And just as Joshua was worthy to enter the land when Moses was not, so Jesus brings us into the promised land when Moses never could. So the author is saying, don't fall back on the law. Don't fall back on Moses. Remember, Moses never got to the promised land. He never could. But look instead to Joshua. Look instead to Jesus, right? It's the same word. Look instead to the one who can bring you into that rest. Moses delivered them from captivity but couldn't finish the job. But Jesus' last words regarding the job were, it is finished, right? Moses could not finish the job. Jesus, his last dying words on the cross are, it is finished. So don't give up now. Don't give up in the face of all the world's accusations. Don't give up in the disappointment of your own fellow co-religionists and believers and what they seem to stand for or not stand for, what they say or seem not to say. Don't give up in the face of the tides of the time, you are at the gates of the promised land looking at the other side. And even though it seems like they're giants, and even though you have naysayers and doubters and many in your own camp are saying, let's just go back to this awful land. Let's go back to this place where we sell ourselves back into slavery. Remember what God said. Remember what God did and believe. Let me pray to close this time and then invite you guys to hang out downstairs for coffee and uh, Mojo Monkey donuts. Not the discount stuff. We're giving you the good stuff. So uh, <laughs> uh, let me pray to close this. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, this encouraging and discouraging uh, message from your word. We thank you for the example of the Israelites in the wilderness and what that has to say about us who are also in a kind of wilderness, looking out both to the world that seems like giants on the other side of the gates 
but then also looking to our own uh, fellow believers and, and just kind of being confused and being bewildered at each other as we, we see so many close friends. Every single person here has really close friends that over the last five or 10 years has come to uh, feel this yawning gap between, uh, between their views and ours or between that person's views and the others. And I just, uh, I thank you for what your word has to say for us about remaining firm in following you and remembering that you are the one who guides your church and you are the one who has been victorious. So we pray, Lord, that we would just come under your wing and your power and know that you have, uh, you have written the time, Lord, that you have, you have written the ages out and you know what's going to happen. I just pray that you'd help us to be faithful, to be encouraged as we keep moving through uh, this, uh, what seems like normally an encouraging book, but maybe a discouraging chapter today. Uh, just encourage us, help us to follow your will. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.